Anyway, so really cool example, subhanAllah. I urge you guys, when you're reading even the English, take a pen. My wife started doing this and I literally missed things that she gets from. It was a good job. But take a pen and literally make notes like, I remember this. This was said in ayah number two. And now it's again in ayah number 33. Why is that happening? And reflect on that. I, I, I really challenge you to do this. You will find more than you think you will. SubhanAllah, in any surah that you pick, it's beautiful. And these are the kind of uh, you know, results that you can have is like, well, of course Allah would say this in kaf. And of course he would say that in isra. You know what I mean? SubhanAllah. Anyway, today's going to be very different. We're going to be talking about the impact of the Quran. What did the Quran, basically, what do I mean by that? What did this book, this, not even book, this freestyle rap, again, because remember, we introduced this idea of if it's not the word of Allah, it's the word of a man, the word of the man Muhammad, we say, they wouldn't, but it would be the word of his word. And not the word that he wrote down, but the word that he just kind of spit, really. It's a freestyle. The entire book, if you want to be historically accurate, if it's not from God, it's a freestyle rap that was written down eventually. That's all the Quran is, yeah? So, what did this speech, we'll call it just speech, what did these words, what did this speech do to the world? What did it do to the immediate community it was sent to, which is who, by the way? Who was it immediately given to? Work with me, guys. Who was it immediately given to? Yeah, but what community? Yeah, the Arabs of Mecca. And the Arabs in general, it was first given to the Arabs. You can say more specifically the Arabs of Mecca, but really it was given to the Arabs because it spread. Because Mecca was a trade hub. So some people would come and do trade and come back. I heard something weird. You want to hear it? And they would recite it, right? So it was given to the Arabs first. What did it do to the Arabs? You ever think about that? Like if this book is so impactful, what did it do to them? Individually. What did it do to the women? What did it do, what did it do to the men? How did they think differently? What did it do to the world afterwards? You know, let's, we're going to talk about this a little bit. And I'm going to share with you just one little map and some things I want you to, to keep in mind. Here is, this is Mecca. So like, for example, here's Palestine, just so you, because I know you know where that is. So here's Palestine. And then this is, by the way, obviously back in the day in like uh, the year 600, like 15 or so, 610 or so. For over a thousand years, you had the, you know how like right now, if you think of superpowers politically, you think of the United States, you think of Russia, you think of China, you think of these, these are the three big ones right now. Right. And like there's animosity between them and uh, cooperation against the third stuff like that. Right. Things that kind of weird between them. Back then you didn't have the U.S. and Russia. Obviously, you had the Byzantine Empire, a.k.a. the Romans, Sassanid Empire, a.k.a. the Persians. These were the big dogs. Like these were the superpowers of the world. Everything was subjugated because of them. Yeah. Very powerful. By the way, you know, our country, we haven't been alive even for how long. How old is America now? 250 about 250 years or so. Persia by this time is 1200 years old. Roman is not far behind. I mean, like you do not think of the world without thinking of Persia. You, you think of earth, you think of Persia. You understand? Huge superpowers. In between these superpowers you have, <laughs> you have the Arab. The Arab don't really matter. Yeah. In fact, the Arab are just kind of convenient because notice how it's cut in the middle because of the Arab kind of. And why is that? Why do you think it's cut in the middle because of Arab? Because, the, because of the Arab or because of what? Think guys, why, why do these not merge over here? What's here? Sand. sand, nothing, desert. Why in the world would you want to conquer the Arabs? You're going to send knights in shining armor to barbecue in the middle of Arabia for what? What do they got? Oil that hasn't been discovered yet. What resource do the Arabs have? Nothing. They have nothing. 
They don't even have one, they don't have roofs, first of all. They literally don't have roofs. Second of all, they don't have second, second floor homes, second floor uh, houses. They had walls and a carpet. What are you going to get from them exactly? What resource, what will you benefit from them? Nothing. It's just sand. Arab wakes up in the morning. He looks outside and sees nothing. There's nothing to conquer. You understand? So the Arabs were left alone. And the Arabs, by the way, they go back to Ibrahim We're talking about like thousands of years that they are left completely by themselves. And when you're left by yourself in the middle of nowhere, you go a little uh, creative. You get creative. Yeah. You know, actually, subhanAllah, some of the most well-written prose of poetry are written by men in jail. And why would that be? Did you know that the human mind, it just like literally, uh, if you really want to torture a human being, you don't need to cut their flesh, you don't need to do anything. All you have to do is make them extremely bored and keep them that way. Did you know that psychologically? If you want someone to go insane, put them in a white room and tie them up and don't let them do anything. Don't let them sing, don't let them draw anything at all. If they're bored enough, they go insane. So if you're in the middle of the desert and have nothing to do, you start talking a lot, yeah? <laughs> to yourself and others. And that is why, by the way, I know you've heard the Sunday school version of this, but this is why truly and unequivocally, you cannot compare this to any other nation in human history, the Arabs mastered their language. They had nothing else going on for them but their language. Pure Arabic. I swear to God, you hear lectures by big name shayukh like Yasser Qadi and Naman Ali Khan and Hamza and all these people. And even when they reference some of, not even Quran, just the poetry of these people, just stuff that they would say, like rhymes that they would share, they'd be like, I don't know how to translate this. Because it's that impressive. They just, and even when they do it, they're like, that's not even right. I don't know how to relay this to you. You understand? Their poetry was very impressive. Now you don't go conquering a land for their poetry, right? Who cares about, I don't care if your language is good. I don't need your land. So they were left alone. And we're gonna go into their culture more in a little bit. But for now, I want you to understand what are they really good at in, in Arabia? The only thing they're good at actually is what? Poetry. These people, when you and I wanna get entertainment, we go to the movie theater, we get Netflix, we play a video game. They would sit around a campfire after work and one guy would just be like, hey, I wrote something new. And they would just bob their head and listen to someone do poetry for hours, memorized poetry for hours. You understand? That's what they would do for fun. It, get, it got to the extent that they were obviously, by the way, one actually really important thing. These people, you know, obviously these people have a ruler. Yeah, obviously. These people, emperor, obviously. If you watch a movie 300, he's the guy with, half naked with a bunch of the jewelry. That's that guy. That's assassinate empire, literally, right? But, but they have rulers, they have economy, they have uh, religion, they have uh, you know, uh, laws. These guys don't have laws down here, the Arabs. There's no agreed upon law, there's no agreed upon book, there's no agreed upon ruler. They literally didn't have a ruler. Can you imagine the kind of anarchy that comes about when you don't have a ruler, a government, a law? It, this was literally the ghetto of the world, basically. Because it was made by nothing but tribes, AKA gangs. That's basically how Arabia worked. If you were of a certain tribe, you can easily become a slave. If you were a certain skin color, you were easily a slave. They treated their women like absolutely nothing. Trade commodities at best, at best. That's all they cared about, how they, how they saw people. Yeah? No unified leadership. So when one tribe was bagging on another, they would just go kill them. 
There was no law. My tribe is bigger than yours. That is the law, dude, I'm coming after you. But if they ever wanted to solve it somewhat peacefully, what would they do? Tribe on tribe rap battle. I, that's, which sounds funny, but wallahi, that's, I don't know how else to describe it. They would get one tribe against another tribe and they would pick the best poet from either tribe, put them in the middle and be like, go. And they would go for hours, bobbing their heads and be like, oh, you know that meme? Uh, remember that guy that like, he's like, I'm not a rapper. And like that meme where everyone's falling over him and the guy, it, literally that's what I imagine with the Arabs doing this rap battle, right? Like, oh my God, you know? And they're falling on each other. You know what they would do to the loser? The tribe would kill their own. All of a sudden, not so funny, right? <laughs> That's what they would do. You dishonored us. And to show that we don't care about it, they kill him. That's how seriously they took what? Language, their poetry. Because again, that's all they had. You understand? In comes Quran. Let's see what happens. I want to give you just two, because there's many stories like this. I want to give you two of the ones that I thought were really cool. I want to give you this first one. Is it really already 1153? <laughs> I want to give you this first one, okay? So you know how we have like, uh, is it what it's called? iTunes top 10, is that what it's called? You, you know, when like a song gets super popular, it, it goes up on the top 10 chart, right? That's kind of, and that's kind of how we use a metric of like what song is popular nowadays is you look up the iTunes top 10 and is that what it's still called? iTunes, right? Top 10. Billboards, whatever, you guys get the idea. We have this top 10 that you can log on, you can see a top 10 chart and see by where the money is flowing, what's the most popular song right now. You understand this? They had the same exact concept without the technology back then. What they had was the Mu'alliqat. Uh, Mu'alliqat are really interesting. So you had the Kaaba, I mentioned the Kaaba. Kaaba is a huge building. And every year they would host, obviously, a, a rap contest, a, poet con a poetry contest, where the best poets of every tribe came together they would recite their poetry. And again, I want to be very clear. When they recite poetry, it's not like they're reciting like five lines. They're reciting lines and lines, hundreds of lines that take hours to go through. You understand? It is not like a roses are red, you know, uh, roses are violets are blue. It's not like that. They're going like way, way, way deep into time. Like very, very, very long poetry, okay? And they would go together. People would cheer them on. And if yours was super good, they would write it down for like the five people in Mecca that knew how to write things down anyway, but they would hire someone to write it down and they would stick it on the Kaaba and hang it on the Kaaba. Like this is who we are. This is our iTunes top 10 charts. This is the best we have this year, right? So the Prophet being the genius that he was, had an idea because they won't listen to him. Keep in mind that for the, the, like the, basically the first half of the seat on Mecca, they literally wouldn't let Quran be recited out loud in public. And we'll get to why in a little bit, but it messed with their economy. It messed with the way that they thought it was brother against brother. For some reason, this book made everything very divisive, which again, we'll get to in a little bit, okay? But back to the story, he decided, cause they won't listen to me. They won't listen to me. So he had someone, he obviously saw something, didn't know how to write himself. So he had someone write down Surah Al-Kawthar. Who knows, raise your hand if you know Surah Al-Kawthar in here. Thank you, good. How many words of Surah Al-Kawthar? How many ayahs? Three, how many words? It's 10 words, it's 10 words. This is the shortest, this is the, I don't have time to pray right now, Surah, you should not have that mentality. This is a, unfortunately, unfortunately our, to our own demise, the mentality that we have. This is the, I don't have time right now, Surah. Look what he did, Salsanam. He wrote it down, he turned it in. He had someone turn it in for him. And then keep in mind, he's turning in a 10 word poem against what? These, you know, 
50-page Microsoft Word documents of poetry. You understand? And then they got to his and they read it out loud. I want you to, you guys know Kawthar, right? Everyone together. They added a fourth, meaning the people there screamed in unison, What does that mean? Who knows? This is not the word of a man. And they tore everything else down and put Kawthar up on the Kaaba. And the prophet was like, by the way, that's good on. And they took it back down and put everything else back up. <laughs> Something about this freestyle, they couldn't explain. Even when they didn't think it was Quran, what did they say? Look how moved, by the way, that they made it rhyme with it, yeah? bashar. <laughs> you know what I mean? SubhanAllah, man. Something about this thing. I'll give you one more story. Later on, I told you that in the beginning, there was censor, uh, very heavy censorship on the Quran. They would hire people to come sing and dance what the Prophet used to try to recite. One time he was reciting and there was a dude that if you know Sira, you know, and you should know, you should learn Sira and know this, yeah? Uh, one of the staunchest uh, enemies of Islam at the time, the enemy of Muhammad at the time, arguably the worst, arguably the worst, Walid ibn Mughira, who, raise your hand if you, remember, if you know that name. Yeah, you know that name? Walid ibn Mughira. You definitely know that name. Anyway, Walid ibn Mughira, yeah? He, again, did these people have leadership? Did they have a government? Did they have a king, a governor? No. But if arguably scholars say, if there was a president of the Arabs, if there was a governor Arab, it would be this guy. Like he's very powerful. He's one of the chief, uh, chieftains of one of the biggest and most important tribes in Mecca. And by the way, why is he the, in that position? He just happens to be their best poet. You see the connection between how they see power and language? Like to them, language is power. Language gives you power, you understand? That's how big of a deal. If you disgrace us with your language, we kill you. If you're good with your language, you lead us, you understand? He was the best poet. So one time, Hassan's reciting. And when Ibn Mughira, he's egged on because he's the leader. Like, don't mess with him. Like, why are you letting him just say this? That the people were telling Walid, Yani. Why are you letting him, meaning Muhammad why are you letting him just break us apart like this? Because the Quran caused mayhem to them. Yani, politically, socially, it caused mayhem, yeah? So he's like, why don't you go speak to him? You're our leader. So he goes, you know what, fine, I will. So he goes up to him. He, and basically he, he, he goes on like a, he gets a tantrum. He goes, Muhammad, what's wrong with you? What do you want? Why are you so happy that the things that you're seeing are, are putting son against father and brother against brother and tribesmen against his tribe? And that's, by the way, that is what happened with Quran, by the way. That there was unison, even if it was oppressive unity, yeah? Like slaves and people getting killed for no reason. You don't talk about it. And now people are talking about it because of what? Quran, this freestyle. Why are you messing up with our way of life? What is it that you really want? Do you want women? We'll get you married to the most beautiful women we know. Do you want money? We will make you the richest man in Arabia. And look at this third offer. This third offer is insane. Do you want to be our king? Why is that a weird offer? For as long, not only, you're right. Not only do they not have a king, they've been here for thousands of years and never had a king. We will break our sunnah of thousands of years to get you to shut up. We'll make you our king. And he goes on and on. You know how they do, you know, in all the Sira stories. Okay. 
the Prophet ﷺ first asks, are you done? <laughs> he's polite, literally, his, his, his uh, manner is shown literally every story. So all of a sudden, but anyway, he asks, are you finished? And he goes, yeah, I'm finished. He just recites. He doesn't even, he just recites some Quran. And I wanna, I'm gonna take the camera away from this conversation. I'm gonna go back. Remember those cronies that were egging him on to go talk to the Prophet? They're looking at him, they're like, he's crying. What's happening to his face? What's going on over there? They're noticing his face is changing. Back to the conversation. He's reciting and reciting and reciting and he gets to an ayah where Allah talks about Ad and Thamud. Ad and Thamud, literally, they're so well known. You can, they have Wikipedia pages, by the way. Ad and Thamud are Arabian uh, um, uh, cities, nations that lived even hundreds of years before this story starts. Hundreds, maybe if not a thousand or so years, yeah. Very powerful nations of Arab that were completely, the stories are in Quran, they're well known, right? Saleh and Hud were sent to them. Very well-known prophets and very well-known communities completely cut down by Allah when a messenger was sent and they denied, yeah. And the, the remnants of their cities were all over Arabia. So people knew Ad and Thamud because if I travel from Mecca to Yemen, I'm passing by the remnants of Ad and Thamud. If I go to Mecca to Medina, I'm passing by the remnants of these two huge nations. I, my father told me their stories when I was a kid. You understand? Everyone knows them. And th- this, this last ayah that the Prophet ended with, he was, Allah was threatening them that if you continue on this path, I will send you something like I sent who? Ad and Thamud. Walid got so overwhelmed, he literally put his mouth on the mouth of the Prophet. He said, hasbuk, like, just please stop. That's enough. And he walks away and people de- describe it like he's like hunched over and he walks away. Like wah, wah, and like he walks away. He goes back to the people that co- told him to do it. And he said something, by the way, he was talking to himself when he walked away. I wanna make it very clear. As he was walking away, he said a couple of things. First thing he said was, I heard a speech that there's no way it's from man or jinn. It is the sweetest thing. And by the way, remember when I told you that there's poetry that literally well-learned sheikhs don't know how to translate? This is one of them. He was truly a master poet, Walid. He wasn't a Muslim, but he was a master poet. And he starts basically spit, uh, 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 you know, rhyming, uh, uh, you know, this poetry about the Quran, right? That I swear this could not have been from man or jinn. I've never heard anything sweeter. It is going to overwhelm and nothing is going to overwhelm it. So then the companions of his that told him to go to the Prophet in the first place were like, you're not coming back with the same face. What happened? Your face changed. And he said, whatever that man has to say is going to happen. I want to keep in mind he's not a Muslim. He never believes actually. But even as a non-Muslim, what is he saying? Whatever this man has to say is going to happen. That's a weird claim from a non-Muslim. We're going to talk about that in a little bit actually. It's a very strange claim. Because then the question comes, why didn't he just believe then, yeah? Logically, he understands, why doesn't he just believe? We're gonna talk about this. But then he, they put political pressure on him. He's a politician at the end of the day. And he's like, what do you want me to say about it? And they started telling him, say that he is a fortune teller. He goes, he's no fortune teller. That's not, that's not fortune. Then they say, say that he's a magician. He's like, that's not magic, dude. It's not magic. Say that he was a poet. He's like, I'm your poet. He's not your poet. And that's not poetry. 
And they said, you have to say something. And he basically went to his home for a few days and came out and chose the, for, the magician one. He's like, just call him a magician. He had to just pick an option, yeah? And that's what he went with. There was something inexplainable to the people that knew this language more than anyone else. There was something about this speech they weren't able to explain. Now, something else I wanna talk about is the culture of the Arabs and what happened there, yeah? I want, again, we're talking about these people. These people had a culture that was extremely backwards extremely backwards. I don't want to go into every single example, but a few example, you know that uh, if they had a daughter, what would they do to the daughter? Bury her alive. Because it was a shame on the family that you have a daughter and not a son to carry on the name of the tribe. So can you imagine? I mean, literally like it would be alive to show masculinity by the way, because you have to keep in mind, they could kill the daughter, then bury her. It'd be easier, but you have to shovel, really think about this. Think, think about being a witness to this dude that a live, as if you haven't seen it in Gaza anyway, but like a live baby being put into, the, into a, a, a ditch and as she's crying, you're stuffing her mouth with dirt. As a practice, as an expectation. And why alive? Because it shows, I love my tribe more, I love my emotions as a man. I mean, it's their form of this, what we would now call toxic masculinity, but you get the idea, right? Like this is their masculinity. Look how macho I am. I don't care what she does. I'm burying, burying her alive. They would trade their wives for the night. If one woman was pregnant, they would call a magician who would pick 10 men and she would choose from the men who the father is. It's like, what's that game, Maori? That guy that does the, you're not the father. It's that, but back in the day, just these disgusting practices, you know? But when this thing came down, Quran came down, things really seriously started to change and dramatically started to change. And we'll talk about that a little bit because we're talking about the impact of the Quran, right? These Muslims leave Mecca and go to Medina, okay? When you look at them post Quran and pre Quran, the question, the appropriate question is no longer what changed, but what didn't change. How, who they loved changed. How they felt changed. How they see government changed. How they see women change. Omar al-Khattab, by the way, he has like his, own little, uh, his own hadith, a hadith of his, where he says, we used to think that women were nothing. And in Medina, like this is him saying it in Medina Yani, you know? And what changed his mind? Quran, how they see women changed. How they see their daughters changed. How they use the bathroom changed. How they see cleanliness changed. What they believe in obviously changed. I won't, and really you have to think, think about that. What was the major religion of the Arabs for all those thousands of years? They were worshiping idols. Do you know how hard it is to convince someone who worships idols not to worship an idol? That is a difficult conversation. To convince thousands of them to do that within a span of 23 years is absolutely insane. That's wild. I want to give you one other example of what changed with them, yeah? Did you know that in, is this the 20s or 30s? In the 20s. Do you guys know the 18th Amendment of our country, of our constitution? Who knows what the 18th Amendment is? Go ahead, just say it, yeah, prohibition. Meaning prohibition of alcohol. If you don't know this, we as a nation tried, this lasted for 13 years. We as a nation tried to outlaw alcohol. Do you know this? We tried. Do you know what happened when we tried to outlaw alcohol? 
People died, to say the least. People died. Gangs became extremely powerful. Can you imagine that Biden right now sends a, like a, a, a text to every citizen of America starting immediately, alcohol is illegal. What would happen in the streets? People would lose their minds. How dare you? That's my freedom. What am I gonna do after work? <laughs> office, office talk would be basically nothing without alcohol, by the way, while well, you go to work, no one talks about anything else. So at least we get better at conversation. But people would go insane if that became a law immediately. Go back 1400 years, when one ayah came down and said that alcohol is banned, what did people, this is a hadith from Aisha, what did people do? She said, if it was in their hand, because alcohol was halal for some time, by the way, yeah? It wasn't haram until Medina, until at least 10, 15 years later after Quran started sending down, you understand this, right? So when they're in Medina, she narrates, if it was a cup in their hand, they'd spill it. If it was in their mouth, they'd spill it out and listen to how crazy it got. If they just swallowed some earlier that day, they would induce vomit to take it out of their system. What do you, compare this to us? And she, by the way, finished by saying a river of alcohol flew outside of Medina. From one ayah, one ayah. What in the world happened to these people? that when he says one thing, not he, but Allah says one through his mouth, right? One thing is said and the obedience is immediate. No dissenting voices. No, I think this infringes on my rights. I don't know if I'm comfortable. No, I'll make myself puke for you. Whatever this book says, I go. What, what does this do to people, this thing? Look how it changed them. Can you imagine that same thing came before Quran? Like someone comes and said, from now on, no alcohol. They'd kill him. <laughs> they would kill him, whoever that guy is. You understand? Every single thing about these people, from the smallest things, like how they went to the bathroom, to the biggest things, like how they got married and how they saw government, everything changed. Everything flipped on its head. Which really just pause right here. This is a question I've had my whole life, Wallah. What is it about this book that convinced them so much? Have you ever tried to change someone's mind on something? How did that go for you? It's difficult. It's very difficult to change someone's mind. Changing a society's mind is even more difficult. Changing a nation's mind is that takes hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Like for example, in prohibition, they used force. They remember back when America tried doing this, yeah? When our country tried doing this. They would literally use force. There were shootouts between gang members that were, that were bootlegging the alcohol and policemen, shoot, shootouts back and forth. They tried even on what we would say back in the with the sword they would try and it didn't convince them. And they had to literally take back the law 13 years later because it was causing literally too much crime. <laughs> It was causing too much crime to keep the law. It's such an oxymoron. It was causing too much crime to keep the law, subhanAllah. But with Muslims in that time, something about this speech, these words, changed literally everything about them. And as, like, as a young man, like when I was, like, especially in my early 20s, I'm like, I, I want whatever that is. What is it about the words that changed them? I want to be changed. What, what is that? 
I want to make it very clear that this is not just an Arabia Sahaba thing. It's not at all just an Arabia Sahaba thing, yes? Even nowadays, there are people, like I know a story of this Nazi dude. To be a Nazi in America after World War II is weird, yeah? So you can imagine he's got a lot of weird things going on in his head, yeah? He's a weird guy. Anyway, he's a Nazi. And he's running away from the police because, you know, Nazis tend to not be uh, in line with the law. So he runs away from police and he hides in a library. And, you know, like in the cartoons where, like, they pick up a newspaper and the cops are like, and they, they, he picks up a random book. It happens to be what? Believe it or not, English translation of the Quran. He reads a page or two and converts right there. Changes life completely. You know? And you know stories like this. Like, you know, like the TikTok mass conversion that's been happening since the past hundred days. It's not like this book is, does these crazy convert, like changes in someone's life back in the day. Anyone that seeks guidance and reads that something happens to them. Something happens to them where they change everything about themselves. You see what I mean by impact? I'm going to keep going and I'm going to finish up with this last thing. The Prophet in Medina Towards the end of his life, he conquers Mecca completely. Mecca, by the way, you have to keep in mind, Mecca is what you would call kind of the unofficial capital of Arabia, is Mecca. Yeah, if you rule Mecca, you rule Arabia, basically. When he conquers Mecca, he goes back, وسلم, and dies, وسلم, the greatest tragedy, he dies in Medina. Yeah? Within one year, all of Arabia is unified under one governor, Abu Bakr Again, why is that crazy? they broke the sunnah of the Arabs for 3,000 plus years that they have one governor. You understand? Arabia within a year, without bloodshed, all of them convert to Islam, it's now a Muslim nation. Within 10 years, and literally, when I say within 10 years, I literally mean five to seven years, but just to be conservative here, I'll say 10 years, yeah? You see this big chunk of land right here? Which, by the way, don't be mistaken, these guys were much stronger than these guys. These guys were struggling big time. These guys got lucky. The only reason they didn't die, they didn't completely collapse in the time of the Prophet was because they got lucky. You know, all they knew was raiding. My friend calls them, he's a historian, he calls them white Mongols. All they know is invading. Literally, these guys were not like this technology advanced people that you think they are. But anyway, these guys right here, how old were they again? Who can remind me? 1,200 years old, collapse within five years. I'll say within 10, fine, 10 years. They become Muslim. Or no, not they, not they become Muslim. They become part of the Muslim empire. Within a few centuries, everything you see basically from here all the way to here, the largest empire known to man at the, at the time, within just a few decades, all of it Muslim land. And when I say all of it Muslim land, by the way, I don't mean they're all Muslim. You know what the population of Muslims, this is, Muslims gotta learn their history, wallahi. It's so, so weird. Of, imagine again that all that land that they got within just a few, like two or three centuries, all that land that became the, the first Muslim empire, guess what the percentage population was that were Muslim? Under 5%. You had a Muslim empire where only under 5% of them were Muslim. Because what do we have in our faith? We can't force you. You understand? We can't force you. In fact, when we took the Persians, the Sassanids, we said, look, you govern yourselves as you wish. We just want to make sure that you're within our nation. So then you ask the question, well, how did they convert? When the Quran became more accessible and they talked to the Sahaba, they were like, you guys are amazing. 
And the story goes from there. Within a couple hundred, it took, by the way, a couple of hundred years of people slowly accepting Islam for it to be a majority Muslim nation. Not by ikrah, la ikrah fiddin. There's no compulsion in religion, not by fighting, not by the sword. Anybody who goes on, below, on, on whatever, all these different talk shows on Fox News and Islam is spread by the sword. What, what example do you have exactly? What example do you have exactly? These people accepted Islam because the people that conquered them were amazing. That's the only reason they accepted Islam. SubhanAllah. All from a speech. You know that, that uh, the, um, the challenge of Quran, make a surah like it, have you ever heard that challenge before? I find it so crazy that I've been talking about miracle of Quran for three sessions and I never once mentioned this ayah. But there is such an ayah, make a, make a surah like it. If you don't believe in it, make a, it's, a, it's a challenge that Allah has posed to humanity for basically all of time. If you don't believe in this book, make one surah like a surah that I have. Actually the challenge in the beginning was make 10 surahs like it and they couldn't do it. Then he's like, okay, make one surah like it and they couldn't do it. Then he said, make just min mithlihi, make anything like it. And they fail. I remind you again, what's the shortest surah in the Quran? How many words? The bar is super low, dude, 10 words. The bar is very low. Make something like the 10 words at least. It's been so long and people have tried by the way. Literally we had like, in, and pe when people try, it's embarrassing, I have to add by the way. Very embarrassing when people try. Yeah, especially when they're very haughty about it, I think they did it, very embarrassing. Literally they actually had like the, the, the Brits back in the day, the Brits took, made a lot of effort to kill Islam, by the way, yeah, a lot of effort. It's in their books. Maybe one day we'll talk about that. Actually next week, we'll probably talk about that inshallah, about uh, colonialism and like how they tried to um, kill the Islam within Muslims because they saw that as a threat. Not the Muslim, but the Islam, you understand? But anyway, they even called up all the best known Arab uh, scholars of the time to Britain to try to make something like the Quran. And obviously that didn't really end up working out for them. Yeah? This is a strong challenge, but what is the scope of the challenge? It's not just the part, the, 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 uh, the Arabic of it. Make something that does to people what this thing did to people. Make anything, anything with Arabic that can change the world or change a person the way that this thing can change a person. Not just the Arabi of it, not just the structure, not just the precision, the impact. Make me one thing that changes humanity like this changes humanity. And I wanna be very clear before we take our break, really fast, yeah? This is a kind of a long-winded point. But you know there's philosophers, yeah? People that invent things like liberalism and communism and capitalism. You know, these are all books. These are theories that are written in books, yeah? The same way that we have a book, this is their book, is capitalism, liberalism, communism, all these isms that you know, they're all from philosophers. These philosophers though, they write it down in their book and it's not until like 100, 200 years later that someone's like, this is interesting, and then applies it. You understand? Like the French Revolution, what the philosophy of liberalism that, that sparked the French Revolution was not written until like, until like 60 years before that even happened. But this Quran, as it's coming down within 23 years, the same people that accepted it are the same people opening up Persia. That's insane. It is the only time in human history that a freestyle, that a book, that whatever you wanna call it, these words changed people and humanity the way the Quran did. There is literally nothing like it even historical. There is no book that did what this book did. SubhanAllah.
impact. You understand? Before I put you on the break, I'm gonna introduce a second part. Oh, great, I'm good on time. Uh, the second part real fast. Here's a question, which is I think a good question. If the Quran is so obviously a miracle, which wallahi, I, I hope, I hope, if it's not clear to you, I hope you go on your own journey with it. To me, it's clear. So I'm gonna go off that assumption, bismillah. If it's extremely clear the Quran is a miracle, and wallahi, it is super clear Quran is a miracle, but if it's super clear to humanity that it's a miracle, it's from God, why doesn't everyone just believe? Why not? We're gonna talk about that after the break, inshallah. Uh, there's stuff in So, there. since we have a little bit of time, I will share with you something that I feel like really captures the difference that you know, what happened to these people and how the Quran changed their lives uh, when it came down. So, if you guys are hopefully familiar at least a little bit with Sira, yeah? There was a time in the Mecca era where everyone is being persecuted, the Muslims are being persecuted. And before they went to Medina, they went temporarily to a place called Abyssinia for basically as like refugees, basically, yeah, because they're being religiously persecuted. And the leader of this bunch was Jafar ibn Abi Talib, right? It was, it was that Jafar, yeah, that Jafar. So Jafar, he's a Sahaba, he went over and he had to stand in front of the king. And this is not the whole speech, but I wanna read, read to you an excerpt from the beginning of his speech to kind of show you how even in his own words, there's a night and day difference and even in his own life, in the society's life, you understand? So again, this is Jafar. He's talking to the, the, the Negus. He's talking to the king of Abyssinia. And he's trying to explain the, what the message did to them. You understand? He's trying to explain their situation. He says, oh king, we were, a, this is Jafar. Oh king, we were a people in a state of ignorance and immorality, worshiping idols and eating the flesh of dead animals, committing all sorts of abomination and shameful deeds. Uh, notice he didn't go into detail what that means. It's because they were pretty bad, yeah? Like you can look into that yourself. Breaking the ties of kinship, treating guests badly, and the strong among, among us exploited the weak. And that basically is the law of the land, by the way. The strong exploit the weak is basically the law of the land at the time. That's, that's, that is the law, yeah? They had no government, but that is the law. We remained in this state until Allah sent us a prophet, sallallahu One of our own people whose lineage, trust, uh, truthfulness, trustworthiness, and integrity were well known to us. He called us to worship Allah alone, to renounce the stones and the idols which we and our ancestors used to worship beside Allah. He commanded us to speak truth, to honor our promises, to be kind to our relations, to our relatives, to be helpful to our neighbors, to cease all forbidden acts, to abstain from bloodshed, to avoid obscenities and false witness, and not to appropriate an orphan's property nor slander chaste women. I thought that was just a beautiful thing from their own words without someone giving you a speech about it from the Sahaba's own words, how he sees a night, a night and day shift of what this book provided them. Yeah, SubhanAllah. Okay, so I want to talk to you going back to that question I was asking. What is that question? Again, just to reiterate, if the Quran is so obviously a miracle, why doesn't everyone in humanity just read it and believe? Okay, and here's what I want to talk about. This is something I've literally waited over a decade to talk about this. This is something, I know I'm kind of a nerd, but I, I, I studied psychology in college and I took my favorite class was social psychology, okay? We learned a lot of different things that were almost immediately applicable, beautiful things that we learned. Um, I recommend studying on like studying psych on the side. You learn a lot of inshallah, amazing things about just even your society, yourself, whatever. One thing that we learned this is a, this is, it sounds very complicated. I promise you it's not that complicated. So please don't be scared. 
called cognitive dissonance. Please don't be scared. I promise you it's not that complicated, okay? Cognitive dissonance, okay? And I sat in the class. I won't tell you that yet, but I love it. Listen to this, okay? What is cognitive dissonance? I put a, I'll put something up here. This is, I, everyone will define this slightly differently, by the way, but I reconciled all of it together as best I can to make it very clear, crisp language for you, okay? So this is my own words, but taken from sources. It is the mental discomfort felt when your behavior contradicts your belief. So this is an internal problem. Cognitive dissonance is an internal thing. This happens within you. And I'll give you an example of this, but again, to reiterate, it is the mental discomfort felt when your behavior contradicts your belief. What does that mean? Human beings are really amazing. SubhanAllah, even just like our minds are incredible. Let's say, for example, what, what this is saying basically is that when you do something, you commit an act that goes against something that you believe, your head goes into a state of confusion that is extremely uncomfortable and that needs to be resolved. Human beings cannot stay in comfort for too long. They need resolution. They can't stay in pain forever. They need resolution or they go crazy. Understand? That's a simple concept. Now, what is an example of this? For example, let's say that I'm a smoker. Okay, I'm not a smoker, but let's say I'm a smoker and I smoke cigarettes. Now I'm a Muslim, so what do I believe? This is haram, actually forget, forget haram, forget haram. Is smoking good for you or bad for you? Is there any difference of opinion that smoking is bad for you from anyone worth, worth their weight in salt? No, it, smoking is 100% bottom line, there is 100% bad for you. you, we agree, yes? Forget religion and morality, this is bad for you. So I have that belief, smoking is bad for me. But still, what do I do? I smoke. When it comes into my attention that I'm doing something that's different from what I believe, in my head, I, I feel a great mental discomfort. And I called for you to, to even reflect on yourself. If you've ever done something that contradicts even your Islam, how do you feel? You feel a great level of guilt. You even beyond guilt, by the way, you feel like, am I even a Muslim? Am I doing something wrong? Like I'm doing something wrong. Why is it that I believe in this, but I don't do it? You feel a lot of discomfort. And this discomfort might even last hours, days, weeks, but you can't stay in it forever. You have to get out of it. So then comes the question, how does someone resolve that discomfort? How does someone resolve cognitive dissonance where their belief is not matching their actions? There's three ways. But before I go into the three ways, can someone name me an obvious way? Again, let me go back to the example. I'm smoking. I believe it's wrong. Or sorry, not morality. I believe it's bad. It's bad for me but I smoke. What's the obvious way to get rid of my dissonance? The first way to resolve dissonance, change the behavior. Put out the cigarette, stomp on it, never go back, problem solved, because there's no more contradiction. Yeah? Um, what's another way? Before that, hold that for a second. Change the belief itself. You know what? Smoking isn't bad for you. All those scientists are stupid and I'm right. <laughs> Literally, if you read the, um, like a, a, book, a textbook on cognitive dissonance, the words that they use are ignore or deny data. Keep the word deny, please, in your mind, if you don't mind, yeah, deny. Put, keep that in your mind. It's actually very interesting to use. When I saw them use that word, I was like, that's actually amazing that they use the word deny. But anyway, if you deny the belief, you bury it deep inside, you don't want it anymore, then is there a problem? 
No, because your new belief that you just made up matches the action. So you're fine. Smoking is fine and I'm smoking. There's no problem. No dissonance. Do you understand how it solves the problem? But it's kind of, which one gets more respect in your eyes, by the way, so far? Yeah, changing the behavior. Does this really yield any respect that you change the belief? If in fact the belief was true to begin with? No, not really. That's not, very, that's not a very respectful or respectable uh, you know, outcome, right? There is a third option. Those are the two obvious ones. The third option, what were you saying? You justify it. If you add extra thoughts to justify the behavior. So for example, I'm smoking and I'm like, oh, this is not good. But I eat apples sometimes. I ran last Wednesday. See how silly that is? Just because you eat apples and run does not mean it justifies the smoking. The smoking is still bad for you, dude. Apples don't, yeah, it's like you're, <laughs> you're weighing it against itself. You're justifying, yeah? You understand how that's also problematic? You're not being honest. You see, by the way, assuming the belief is true, that's the problem, that's the big thing here. Assuming the belief was inherently true, this first one, good people do, usually. These second two, I don't wanna say good people. You're being honest with yourself if you do number one. That, I'll say that. You're being honest with yourself, right? With two and three, are you being honest with yourself? No, you're trying to change and contort your insides so that you can basically do what you wanna do. Does that make sense? Now I'm sitting in my classroom. This is where I love this. I've been waiting for so long. You guys better like this because it's been years, dude. It's like a fine wine. Uh, well, I can't drink wine. It's like a fine milk. Okay, <laughs> it's rotten. Anyway, um, I'm sitting in my social psychology class and he's, he went through the three options. I'm like, dude, this is just like Bakara. Listen to what I mean by this. That sounds kind of far-fetched, but listen. Bakara is, for all intents and purposes, Bakara is the opening of the, of the book. It's Fatiha and then Fatiha is a du'a, a couple of words, and then it goes into Bakara. Bakara, it opens up by introducing how many groups? Three groups, three groups. Sub, two, of the, two subgroups of the same thing, yeah? Three groups it introduces. The first group that Bakr introduces are people who believe. People that when the message, and by the way, the, the focus of Bakr in the beginning is the message, belief in the message itself, yeah? The people that believe in what was sent down to you, what was sent down to people before you, to messengers before you, yeah? So these people, when the message came, it made sense, but their behavior was wrong. But what did they do? They changed their behavior. I let, ya Allah, I let this go for you. Yeah. By the way, I have to, I, I might as well introduce this now. To keep this in mind, literally forever. Keep this in mind forever. If you don't already know this, you need to know this. If you know this, this should, your thoughts should always go back to this concept in Islam, okay? Basically, you know, from Quran in Islam, we believe that every human being is of two things. It's a mixture of basically two things, yeah? It is your body and the what? Let's say the word ruh. I don't like the word, so I'll use the word ruh, okay? So the ruh. The ruh has this software pre-installed in it called what? The fitra. This is a Islamic concept called the fitra. Not many other religions have this, subhanAllah, actually. But we have this thing called the fitra. Raise your hand if you heard the fitra before, if you learned about it before. Not enough. Well, I'm not gonna lie, not enough. The fitra is a very important concept, guys. A very important, for Muslims, it is critical to understand, especially American Muslims, critical to understand. The fitra in your ruh, it's like this 
pre-installed software. You know, like if you open up any iPhone, it comes up with like the hello screen. You know what I mean? This is the pre-installed software of every single human being that has left the operation line. Yeah? You open it up, it doesn't really always say hello, but it has a fitra. It all, ha- all of them have fitra. Whether you're French and lived a thousand years ago, or you're Arab and you live now, whatever you are, from wherever you are, are from whatever nation you're from, you have a fitra. This fitra is basically a natural inclination to goodness. I mean, even anthropologically, in the study of human history and civilization, think about it. Why does every single nation and civilization, even though they never spoke to each other, they all agree that killing is wrong. They all agree that sexual immorality is wrong. They all agree that you shouldn't steal. Where did they get this from? Did they all come together in a consensus and they flew out to Las Vegas to have a convention about what's right, anthropological? No. It's like humanity, for some reason, all agree on some baseline without talking about it. In Islam, we know why Allah gave us a fitrah. They have roundabout reasons to explain why. Yeah. But we know why for certain, and that is the fitrah, that Allah installed this in us. This fitrah also includes that when you hear about tawheed, you hear about Allah, let's say you're a non-Muslim, you hear about Allah, the Quran for the first time, you're like, what is this? You ever see actually someone go through this before? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. If you don't have a convert friend, you got. If you don't have a convert friend, you got to get yourself a convert friend. Because the stories, wallahi, it's just fitra. It's like, how? Do, what, what, what was fitra like for you? That's the question you might as well ask him. What was fitra like for you? Because they all have some moment where they're like, and then I read, and now it was just so clear. I have a cousin, well, a cousin who, my cousin's husband. He used to be Catholic. He's Puerto Rican. He used to be Catholic. And then he's like, I'm like, so what was your story? Like what, what happened? He converted, he converted and married my cousin. And uh, I, you know, I want to know his story. So I'm like, so what happened? Like what convinced you? He's like, honestly, dude, I pick up the Quran and you don't have to get that far in. He got to page like two. And he's like, all right, I'm convinced. <laughs> and I have my best friend also. He got to page, because I know the exact ayah. One, two, three, four. He got to page four. He's like, yeah, this is it. Fitra, Yeah. Like there's something that's so obvious in you that when something comes and confirms it, if you're a believer, you will change whatever behavior that you have that's contradictory to follow this thing because now that's my belief. Does that make sense? So the first group is believers. Funny enough, who is the second group? Disbelievers. Now, why is this interesting? When Allah introduces disbelievers in the Quran, what word does he famously use? Yeah? The people who just with kafir. Kafir is a very interesting word. Does anyone know what kafir literally means? If you go back, because sometimes the Quran changes what a word is actually uh, uh, means, yeah? But linguistically, what does the word kafir mean? Why did Allah choose this word? Kafir is a? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, she went like this. You cover, it's to cover. Kafir actually, they have over like 30 words in Arabic for the word farmer. Again, Arabic is extremely precise language because of reasons we talked about, yeah? Kafir actually is a farmer. What in the world does it have to do with disbelieving in God? I'll tell you. A kafir specifically is when he digs up a hole and then he puts the seed inside. He's not a kafir yet. As soon as he covers the seed, he's officially a what? Kafir. That's called the kafir. What in the world does it have to do with belief in God? 
kufr in Allah's eyes means I pre-installed you with software and when the truth came to you and you knew it was the truth, you had cognitive dissonance because I want to drink and I want to do this and I want to do that. And you know, people come up with the reasons. Yeah, the people of Mecca, for example, would say, we don't want to lose our power, for example. Yeah, I had a friend back in the day who said, I want to be buried with my Catholic parents so I can't convert. That was his reason. He believed in everything else, but that was his reason. When you decide, I will not change my behavior for my comfort, I will change my what? Belief, that's kufr. To cover up the truth. Literally, it's as if your fitrah was in there and you have to kill it and bury it and put a gravestone on it and be like, it was never there. By the way, kafara also means to deny, which is why I love to use that word. To deny the facts. To deny the facts. See how profound Allah's language is when he uses a word like kafir? Like they never heard it used like this before. Allah's speech is the best, subhanAllah. So many lessons in that. I don't have time to get into it. But you see the significance of this? A kafir in Islam is someone, the truth comes, they kill it and bury it, and that way their outside can match their inside and they have no problem. They just change the belief. And of course they're free to do so. And then the third one, what is the third group that Allah mentions? The munafiqun, the hypocrites. People that justify their behavior. You know what munafiq is, is what a hypocrite is in Arabi that the Quran uses, more important than Arabi, the Quran uses the word munafiq. You know what nafaqa means? Nafaqa, uh, it's, it's a lizard. It's a lizard that buries two holes. So anytime there's danger in one hole, he escapes out the other. And these people keep justifying. I'm on this side, I'm on that side, depending on where the danger is. And they keep justifying. SubhanAllah, in the beginning, of Bakr, beginning of Quran, Allah is highlighting all the possible decisions that you could make to resolve this dissonance. Meaning Fatiha was enough to convince you. Now what are you gonna, what group do you belong to? Do you belong in believers? Are you gonna change your behavior? Do you belong with the kafar? Are you gonna change your beliefs? Or do you belong with the munafikun and you wanna play games? Who do you belong with? And then the surah goes from there SubhanAllah and explains more in detail. Isn't that amazing? But this is, always goes back to this conversation. The question of why do people not just believe? It's always this. It is always this. And forget non-Muslims. Let's talk about ourselves. I don't like talking about outside. I like talking to Muslims about Muslims, okay? About yourselves. Really think about yourself, actually. Be fair with this. Instead of thinking about all oh, those kafar and blah, 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 and those hypocrites, think about yourself. Because we call ourselves amongst the first group. And inshallah, we are amongst the first group. But I want you to really think do you actually change your behavior to fit the message? Truly, do you actually try to do so? And that's a question I have to ask myself, you have to ask yourself. Everyone's got their own personal journey with this stuff. But I wanna make something very clear. When I say that Quran comes down and people have to make a decision, that decision is not whether or not you believe in God, dude. The Quran does not praise the idea of belief in God. No, that is not a praiseworthy idea, that's an obvious idea. Belief in God is so obvious. You know what hoops atheists have to run through to explain the lack of God? They literally, they're, they're, they talk about now the price of atheism. Like the, the mental logical price of atheism. The way they explain through things, well, I, I recommend you look it up. It's so silly. The logical price of atheism, so silly. God is obvious. That's not the hard part. Believing in God is not the hard part. You know what the hard part is, Wallah? The hard part 
is believing in Allah as the Rabb. What does Rabb mean? The master. Believing in Allah as the master. Believing in one that's in charge of me and everything I do, that's difficult. It's easy to believe, yeah, there's a God and he takes care of me and I love him and he loves me and we're cool. Very easy. Many people of our generation, by the way, are actually, they believe this, yeah? The, the new religion of my generation, your generation, people younger than me too, is agnosticism, that they believe in God and there's some personal relationship, but they don't believe it has anything to do with them. You understand? Belief in Allah as Rabb necessarily means he expects something of me, that I must be doing something right now or I'm in trouble. That's hard to believe. When that belief, it, yeah, that realization comes into your head, now you start making excuses. Because what excuse do you have to make if God is there and he loves you, you have nothing to do? There's no dissonance. You're not doing anything wrong. He loves you and I can do whatever I want. But when Allah has specific rules for you, when you believe Allah is not just there, but he owns me, I'm his, that's difficult. And even, we have to be honest with ourselves, even Muslims, even believers struggle with this. So next week, I have them next week too, right? Next week is my week, right? No, next week. Okay, the next session, like I said, I was prepared for next week. The next session I have with you guys, we are literally only gonna talk about the word Rabb. We're gonna do tafsir of the word Rabb next week. Yeah, thank you. Two weeks? Ah, two weeks, two weeks from now. So what day is that? What day is that? The 27th and the 3rd. So the 27th is the day we're gonna do what I'm talking about. On the 27th of January, the whole session is just gonna be talking about the word Rabb. The word Rabb, the word master. What does that mean? What does that mean about Allah? What does that mean about me? And what I actually wanna do is give you a history lesson. How did people abuse this word? And I also wanna talk and you'll see, you'll find out if you come and invite people and I, I really think you'll benefit from it. It changed my life entirely we're gonna talk about the history of psychology in America. And you'll see how that connects. It's, it's gonna be awesome, I guarantee you, inshallah. I look forward to you guys being there. We have 10 minutes until the hood, so I'm gonna stay down here if you guys wanna talk or ha you have any questions, come up to me, inshallah. But may Allah reward you guys for coming even despite the weather, really. Uh, I want you to remind you that Allah loves people who go out of his way to learn his book. So may Allah reward you guys for that. And inshallah, we'll see you guys in two weeks, not one, January 27th. Salam.